Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA plus Unity Ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash I am divine 2022. Practical Spirituality Positive Messages This is Unity Online Radio The Voice of an Awakening World Welcome to the Yoga Hour Offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living today. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show. You can learn more about the show at our website, theyogahour.com. Our topic today is living your spiritual practice. What is it to live this human life in a way that relates to our spirituality, that relates to our spiritual life. How do we bring that spiritual life off of the meditation cushion or off of the chair we use to meditate and into the world? I'm delighted to be joined today by Zoketsu Norman Fisher. Norman Fisher is a poet, an author, and Zen Buddhist priest. For many years, he has taught at the San Francisco Zen Center, the oldest and largest of the new Buddhist organizations in the West, where he served as co-abbot from 1995 to 2000. He is presently a senior Dharma teacher there, as well as the founder and spiritual director of the Everyday Zen Foundation an organization dedicated to adapting Zen Buddhist teachings to Western culture. Norman's recent book that we will be discussing today is When You Greet Me, I Bow, Notes and Reflections from a Life in Zen. You can find out more about Norman Fisher, his teachings and books at the websites normanfisher.org and everydayzen.org. You can also find a few previous conversations with Norman Fisher in our Yoga Hour archive at Unity Online Radio. So welcome, Norman Fisher. I'm really delighted to have you join me today on the Yoga Hour. Wonderful to be back. Thank you. Uh So before we begin our dialogue about living your spiritual practice, let's begin with a moment of contemplation. Let's begin right where we are, whatever we're doing, and just bring our attention to our body in space. Feeling any surfaces that support our weight, whatever we're doing, whether we're walking or sitting, just feeling where are our feet? What surfaces support our weight? And then bringing the attention to the breath, And just notice as we take a fully conscious breath, the next inhale and exhale. Noticing the cool air in the nostrils on the inhale. 
and the warm air flowing out. Not trying to change the natural rhythm of our breath, just noticing. And as we rest here, right where we are, here's something to contemplate from the founder and spiritual director of the Yoga Hour, Yogacharya, Ellen Grace O'Brien, from her book, Living for the Sake of the Soul. We express our divine nature by living it, by listening deeply to the soul's guidance and having the courage to follow it. The duty we are called to is precise and personal, the fulfillment of our own authentic self-expression. Even though we may carry out our role imperfectly, that is perfectly a part of the plan. Our imperfection is indispensable. It provides our growing edge. Our imperfection is indispensable. It provides our growing edge. Oh. Once again, Norman Fisher, welcome back to the Yoga Hour. I'm really delighted to have you on the show and to discuss your recent book, When You Greet Me, I Bow, which is a compilation of your writings from the past several decades, I believe over the past 40 years. And I really liked the way you began the book in a section called Notes on Looking Backward While Walking Forward. And you write backward and forward in time, in space. Is there any difference? Are we getting anywhere, going anywhere? I don't know. I, I, I don't know why, but that just struck me as such a great, such a great beginning. <laughs> Are we getting anywhere? <laughs> Are we going anywhere? Yeah. So what was your experience of working on this book, looking back at things you had written over that span of time? Well, it was really interesting uh, because uh, many of the things that I had written, I had forgotten about completely. So I was surprised, you know, to to, to uncover things. Uh, I, I had a great help, Cynthia Schrager, who's a member of our community and is a very good reader of texts. She has a doctorate in, in literature, so she's really mm-hmm. sensitive to text. And she's the one who gathered all the material and helped me to evaluate it. But it was really funny to uh, find things that were written long ago and that, and that were written in the, in the context of historical events that were long past, you know, and that we had forgotten about or I had forgotten about. And uh, in, in some ways, um, I was surprised often at how much uh, the things that I felt then, uh, I still feel now, and how little has changed. Sometimes mm-hmm. the opposite, how uh, much has changed. But... Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, it, it is a funny thing. I think it's a it's a uh, uh, part of what happens when you do spiritual practice full time for a long time. Time itself becomes uh, different, and and you don't know whether you're going forwards or backwards or round and round or what day is it, and and did anything happen at all over forty or fifty years uh, in the silence? Uh, every moment is all moments and every moment is going straight ahead and we don't know where you know so it is a funny experience a retrospective living 
uh, even if it's just for a, a moment, is a very funny experience. Yeah. Well, it's a beautiful book. I, I really, really have Thank enjoyed you. reading it, getting ready for our conversation today. Was there anything other than discovering things that you had forgotten? Was there anything else that surprised you about the process of looking at all of this, all of these writings over the past decades? Uh, well, um, what was interesting was uh, Cynthia. It was Cynthia's idea for me to um, write contemporaneous notes reflecting mm -hmm. on the pieces. So she divided the book into, into four sections. And before each of the four sections, uh, each section on a different theme, I uh, wrote a section, a series of notes. And so that was really interesting to see if I was asked to comment on all these essays over a period of time, what would I, what would that look like to me now? Mm -hmm. And so that was, mm -hmm. that was a really interesting part of the book because um, to write those notes, um, I could write, you know, very informally, very personally, uh, without needing to have a finished product or a finished uh, point of view. They were just notes. So that was interesting to, to, because uh, you know, when you write things, you you find out what you think. Uh, that's how I write right. anyway. I don't necessarily think in advance and then write. I'm writing and I'm finding out what I'm thinking. So that was interesting to find out what am I thinking now about what I thought then. That was sort of an interesting experience. And, the, and mm -hmm. all that is in the book. I really enjoyed those notes, by the way, at the beginning of each section. Uh, it was oh, really yeah. a pleasure to, they were to quite read fun those. To write. Yeah. yeah. So the first section of your book, which is called A Buddha and a Buddha, is about relationship and mm -hmm. I definitely could have just we could have had this whole conversation just about those that group of essays that's only about a quarter of the book you write because this is what I have discovered after many decades of Zen Buddhist practice that the religious life isn't about truth as much as it is about relationship or per or that perhaps Truth and relationship are one and the same. In other words, from the standpoint of Zen practice, relationship doesn't mean what we normally think it does. Boy meets girl, person meets person, parents and children, friends, relatives, associates, colleagues. It does mean all of that, of course, but that only as a vehicle for some truth beyond them. Relationship is not something that happens or doesn't happen in a life. It is life, and it is life's greatest or truest truth. So would you say more about this? How is religious life about relationship? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, thank you for uh, quoting that. Yeah, that is an important, I guess, one of the most important statements in the book. Um well, I, I think it, it comes from the heart of uh, Buddhist uh, thought and Buddhist philosophy, but I, I have no doubt that similar thoughts occur in all religious traditions. Yes. So, yeah. But let me, let me speak about it from the point of view of Buddhist thought. Um, one of the deepest insights of the Buddha is that there's no separate self. So we think of ourselves as being atomized individuals. Uh, maybe we're a little lonesome and we need one another uh, for company. 
But from the Buddhist, uh, deepest Buddhist perspective, uh, when you look deeply at yourself, uh, you don't find any self there. You, you only find relationship. Mm. So uh, if I have a thought, uh, I, I'm thinking a thought probably using English words. Those In those words are all the English speakers that I've heard and read. Uh, they're in the words. They're, they're in, my parents are in those words. My parents who taught me how to speak are in those words. Um, in other words, in my own mind, already everyone is there. And in my own body, all, all the food I ever ate, all the air I ever breathed. In, in other words, it's literally true that oneself is made up of everything but oneself. All these mm. factors that have gone into being oneself, they're always there within one's, uh, even one's aloneness. So you realize that there is no, there's no separate me that, that is alone. And, and that feeling that I have of being separate and alone is a deeply illusory feeling, very convincing, but not, not really true. And when I let go of my sep- separateness as a self and join with the world, join with the air I breathe, and join with the warmth of the sun that's shining on me, and join with every person that I meet, especially, of course, the people that are closest to me that I've known longest, that I've had much to do with, then uh, my whole life is a relationship. Even if I'm not around any other people, you know, I'm in relation to the environment and to the and to the planet Earth. My body literally is an expression of the planet Earth. Without the planet mm-hmm. Earth, I don't. There is no me. There is no body. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the shape mm-hmm. of my body and the, and the way my body works is is an expression of the Earth. So so everything in my life is relationship. And when you realize that profound thought, of course, the way you live and the way you think of your life is, is quite different. Mm. That's kind of what I had in mind. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. And yoga has a very similar, of course, not identical, but this feeling that the ego self, which is what we mostly identify with, is is really not who we truly are. And that yes. one of the key practices of, of Kriya Yoga is uh, self-surrender. So, so surrendering yeah, exactly. that, you know, that identity. So there's definitely parallels, I guess, in uh, in yeah, yoga no, in yoga teachings. I also yeah, was no, struck I'm by because sure you mentioned is... in in your writing about that this idea about you know relationship, our relationship with ourselves, and it just struck me again. One of the um, other there's three key practices of of uh, kriya yoga: self discipline, self study. And self-surrender, which I already mentioned, that the self-study part is our relationship, studying our relationship to ourselves, really, and looking at that, mm-hmm. you know, very, very, very closely. So you had included that, mm-hmm. the your, our relationship with ourselves. Yes, right. Uh, yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that versions of this uh, is true in, in, with any authentic spirituality. Uh, I'm not surprised to find that it's exactly the same in Kriya Yoga. I, I, I would have thought so, yeah. So the title of the book, When You Greet Me, I Bow, is the same as the first essay in your book. Mm-hmm. Would you share the Zen story that this phrase comes from? Yeah, um, it appears in, in the essay. Um, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll more or less quote it from the book. It's a story about uh, two people who were Zen teachers um, but at the beginning of the story, one of them is a student and not a teacher yet. Long Tong made rice cakes for a living, 
So this is a Chinese person long ago, and he was a baker. He made rice cakes for a living. But he met the priest, Tian Huang, and so he gave up his bakery and went off to follow Tian Huang. And Tian Huang said to him, good, come, be my attendant, and from now on I will teach you the essential Dharma gate, in other words, the truth, mm-hmm. the teachings. So he, after a year uh, went by, a long time, said to him, when I arrived, you said you would teach me, but so far nothing has happened. And Tian Huang said, I've been teaching you all along. And Long Tang said, what have you been teaching me? And Tian Huang said, when you greet me, I bow. When I sit, you stand beside me. When you bring tea, I receive it from you. So this is a very uh, characteristic Zen kind of a story. Uh, But again, I'm sure you'll find the same story in, in every tradition that uh, the real teaching, the real depth of what we're doing together is not in the words or the scriptures. They're only pointers. It's in our living, intimately together, Uh, our standing beside each other, our sitting side by side, our walking, our eating, our visual experience of one another, uh, being in each other's presence. That's really the truth that we're teaching one another. Uh, in a way that's uh, beyond what we can describe. And, and that's what that story is, is pointing out. Just so beautiful. Really, really beautiful. I love that that's, the, that that's yeah. the title, that that's the title of the book, because it really points to what we were just speaking about, relationship, right? This yes, exactly. big pointer to, to relationship. Mm-hmm. And also to presence. One of the other things you write about in the book is that someone once said to you, I know your feet. <laughs> and you reflect mm-hmm. that sometimes even our good friends really don't know our feet. Um, mm-hmm. I I really related to this because I have been on silent retreats in the past where I really felt I knew someone, I really deeply knew someone, despite never speaking a word to them, even, you know, if the, if the um, retreat had been going on three days or seven days or 10 days, these silent retreats, um, because I knew something of their presence. And I think that's mm-hmm. what the story that you just told when you greet me, yeah, I bow exactly. um, is really talking about. And and you also write the most important thing is coming back to presence every day, back to the breath, to sitting, walking and standing and remembering that this is what we are. Yeah. So, can you comment more about presence and how our appreciation of presence perhaps could has has the power to transform our relationships, even with others who aren't in our spiritual community, just people we meet every day? Mm-hmm. Yes, well, thanks for bringing up your uh, reminiscence about, um, you know, being in retreats and, and knowing people so well in the silence. And... Uh, and I think I know that experience too, of course, and that's what I was meant, that's what I was talking about when I said, you know, I know your feet, mm-hmm. uh, and and it's something that uh, that I think uh, is not really known so much to people who have not had that experience of doing long silent meditation retreats in a group with others, and it's a it's a very precious human experience of having. A, a very, very deep connection to other human beings that doesn't depend on our 
exchanging stories or knowing uh, details about one another's lives or you know having maybe a conceptual agreement let's say on on uh, uh, values or politics or whatever this is like another level of being in relation to another person that comes out of silence and just presence to presence without any almost any other content other than that we're human beings together on earth and that is a very precious experience as i say that a lot of people uh, live and die without knowing about although probably there are other ways of of having that experience um for instance um you know at the time of the death of a loved one when people are together uh physically at the time of a death and there's not a lot to say but you're right. just together in the, in the presence of that experience or other kinds of human experiences probably evoke it but uh usually you have that experience and then you forget about it whereas when you're doing spiritual practice you know uh, you have that experience again and again in a, in a controlled way and you know how important it is. And I think the reason that experience, uh, that kind of experience is so valuable, it points to your question, which is that there's an enhanced and a supercharged kind of presence that occurs in those moments, whether it's retreat or other another kind of human moment, when all of a sudden the, the presence that's always what we are, but usually taken for granted because we're occupied with other thoughts and other problems, that presence uh, shines forth and becomes so powerful, it envelops us all around and everything in our vicinity and the whole world uh, becomes part of that presence. And, and you, really, you, know, you really realize the most obvious fact in the world, which is... Um, we're here now mm. for a short time. We don't. We weren't here before. In the future, we won't be here. And in the whole of the cosmos, in this moment, we are here, and and the whole world and its brightness is here. And that's an enormous fact uh, that we almost always overlook, even though we're living in the middle of that fact all the time. And so, for me, uh, meditation practice. Uh, in all spiritual endeavor is, is an effort to cultivate and appreciate and strengthen uh, that presence that's always already there as long as we're alive. But mm. um, we need to strengthen it and we need to appreciate it more. And that's what the practice is all about, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm. And, so, and certainly when we feel that presence, we appreciate everything a lot more and we appreciate others. And so that has a big impact on our relationships with other human beings and other non-human beings. Yes. It seemed that it has the potential that becoming more aware and practicing this idea of presence has the potential to transform our life, transform our relationship, really bring us into that, into that present moment. You gave some relationship advice in the book that I I really just loved, so I wanted you to talk about it. There were two middle-aged people who had recently gotten together as a couple, and you gave them advice about something they should practice every day, which is on page 18 of the book. Would you share that advice with our listeners? Yeah, I'll I'll actually uh, thank you for giving me that page reference because to be honest with you, I forgot what that advice was, but but now that... that, (laughs) 
now that you gave me the page reference, I can I can say what it is. But this is what it says. Practice this every day, I said to them. Do it first thing in the morning, or preferably second thing after meditating together. Sit facing each other and say to one another, I'm grateful today that you are in my life. Say the words, even if you find it difficult. If you don't believe them, say so. Say, I just said that I was grateful that you were in my life, but I don't really feel that this morning, although I would like to feel it. And then try it again. You still don't mean it. You can say so and give up until tomorrow. Then try again the next day, preparing yourself in advance by reminding yourself that you really are lucky to be alive, to be whole and healthy, and to have someone willing to share their life with you. Mm. And, I and just that love is, that. I that especially so true, love. You know? I'm mean, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say that you know I, I, I'm I'm a married person. Uh, we just had our 45th wedding anniversary, and um, any any person who's been in a long-term relationship or or even a short-term relationship realizes that you feel everything you know you feel uh grateful you feel annoyed you feel you know get out of get out of here can i be left alone for a minute and you feel all kinds of things in a relationship um but if you stop and think about it you you really are grateful uh, because it would be sad to be alone you know maybe, and you're glad that you have this person in your life. So it's a matter of intentionally remembering that uh, so that the relationship doesn't get frayed uh, for lack of intentional um, recognition of how lucky we are to have each other. Mm. What I loved about that advice is, of course, it's beautiful advice to, to be grateful to our to our partner. But I really loved when you said, say it even if you don't mean it that day. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and then be honest about that with with your partner. You know, I just said that, but I'm really not that really wasn't honest. And you say it again, and if it's still not honest, then you give it up and you try the next day. I just there was something about right. that commitment of right. coming back to it the next day. If if I just can't get to that grateful place today in my relationship, maybe I can try again tomorrow. Yes. Yeah, I think that there's a power in that in that commitment. You, you think about it, you say, you know, well, I know that uh, I am grateful when I think about it, and I know that feeling grateful uh, is so much better for my life. So I'm committed to feeling grateful. The truth is I don't always feel that, but I always know that I'm committed to that, and I'm going to keep trying to cultivate that feeling. So I think that's, that's the way we have to do it. Because, you know, realistically, we are subject to the conditions of our lives, and like everybody else, we live in a world that's very complicated and often difficult and you know, gets us down and, and makes us feel a little ragged. And so we have, to, uh, we have to work at it a little bit, yeah. Absolutely. And with that, we've come to the break. Stay with us for more from Norman Fisher. Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA Unity ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash divine 2022 You're listening to Unity Online Radio, 
voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to the Yoga Hour. Insights and practices for spiritually conscious living. Welcome back to from the break. You're listening to the Yoga Hour. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show, and I'm here with guest Norman Fisher, who's a Zen priest and author of the book that we're discussing today, When You Greet Me, I Bow. You can find out more information about Norman Fisher at the websites normanfisher.org. His last name is F-I-S-C-H-E-R, so normanfisher.org, and everydayzen.org. We will be posting links to these websites on our website, theyogahour.com. And Norman Fisher, let's get back to our conversation. So in the book, you share an alternative story of the Buddha's awakening, which also comes out of the canon of Buddhist literature, although I, I had never heard it until I read it in your book. This version doesn't focus solely on the loner leaving home and achieving spiritual awakening, but it rather includes the story of Gautama's wife, and I believe it's pronounced Yasodhara, um, who stayed home and gave birth to their son, Rahula. So in your introduction to this section of the book, you write, it may be that this story's inclusion here is the most valuable contribution this book makes. I clearly wanted to include it then in our conversation if you said that it's maybe the most mm -hmm. valuable contribution. So would you share that version of the story of the Buddha's awakening? Yes. Well, as in all uh, religions, there are all, almost always variations on the canon. You know, ev everything, there's lots of different, diver lots of diversity and variation always. And it ends up that for one reason or another, and usually not necessarily a religious reason, but some sort of sociological reason, one version becomes dominant, but not right. because it's truer or, or, or more correct, but just because of circumstances. And that's what happened in Buddhism. There were many, many different sects of Buddhism with different versions of the canon. And the story that we all know is about the Buddha leaving home and on his own uh, achieving enlightenment and, and then becoming a sage. Uh, as if leaving home was a necessary part of, of the story. Um, and that version was carried in Theravadan tradition and became the dominant version. But in another uh, version of the canon, the story is told quite differently. Uh, or I should say there's an additional aspect of the story. The same story is told, the Buddha leaves home and achieves awakening. But uh, in this version of the story, instead of him leaving home, feeling as if the family life was a hindrance to him, here he leaves home uh, loving his wife and regretful that he has to leave the family, but knowing that his half of the story needs to be pursued. The other half of the story is that as he leaves home, he and his wife uh, have a loving encounter and she becomes pregnant. And so her pregnancy exactly parallels the Buddha's various adventures on his path to awakening. So as something happens to him, something parallel happens to her everywhere along the way. And so in the story, you know, the Buddha had six years of spiritual uh, exercises before his awakening. And Yasodhara's pregnancy lasts six years in the text. And... Uh, 
at the moment that the Buddha awakens, uh, Yasodhara gives birth to their son mm-hmm. at the same moment. And so, uh, and this is a canonical story, and, and the scholar uh, whose paper I read about the story points out that the literary form of the story makes it clear that the story is to be understood as one story with two sides to it. The mm-hmm. one side, which is the spiritual side, and the other side, which is the family side, relationship side, and that both of these are meant to go together to make one complete story. And so uh, I really feel like that that is true, that, that every one of us has both those sides. So let's take someone who is a monastic, literally, who, who has be, become celibate and lives in a monastery. That person also has in them, I think, a family person, but the monastic side of them is much stronger, and so they live as a monastic. And the same is true on the other side, that a person who is a family person also has within them a spiritual seeker, uh, a monastic in quotes, who um, wants to uh, realize the truth uh, in their solitude. And but, but for them, the family side is stronger, so they live the family side of life. But I think all of us have both those sides in us. And I think that we all need to articulate both those sides appropriately for us. And so in that sense, uh, I think that story, uh, as, 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 uh, as you quoted from the book, is a really, really, it's really valuable that people understand that that story is a Buddhist canonical story. And that's another way, a valid way of holding and understanding not only the Buddhist tradition, but all of our spiritual traditions. So yeah, that's why I was really delighted to find out about that story long, long time ago and, and, and to write about it. Thanks for pointing that out and sharing mm-hmm. that with the audience. Well, I really love that story, which or that essay, which I think you say, I think it's called something, uh, Leaving Home, Staying Home. And I think yeah. the reason it was so meaningful to me is that um, in our tradition, the Kriya Yoga tradition that's taught at the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, we're fortunate in that our lineage of teachers, our lineage of gurus includes both householders um, who had very active um, family life and worked jobs, et cetera, and also were spiritual teachers and also has monastics. And so there's a way that it holds both of those possibilities. And it's very clear that awakening, spiritual awakening is not dependent on leaving home. It's not dependent on becoming a monastic, but it's something that's really possible for all of us, um, which I think is very powerful. And that's one of the reasons I yeah. wanted to you know, talk about this story, because um, it just feels more spacious. There's more room mm-hmm. for, for all of us in that story. Yes, exactly. Many, many different paths and approaches, yes. Mm. Part of the book, you talk about uh, suffering, and suffering I know is is very central to um, Buddhism. This idea of um, life having a lot of of suffering, and also um, there's quite a bit about the causes of suffering in our texts as well in the Yoga Sutras, for example. Um, so in the essay, suffering opens the real path. You write. The most astonishing fact of human life is that most of us think it's possible to minimize and even eliminate suffering. We actually think this, 
which is one reason it's so difficult for us when we are suffering. We think this shouldn't be this way, or I'm going to get rid of this somehow. I can totally see myself, by the way, in that when you're when you wrote that, it's like, yeah, <laughs> I, I can really relate to that. Then you go on and list in the book all of the ways we suffer. And this is a very long list. I'm just pulling a few out. But anxiety, not getting what we want, irritation, anger, sickness, old age. And you even mention, which I love, you even mentioned getting into the slow line at the grocery store. <laughs> People suffer, yeah. Exactly. So I did want to to touch on suffering because it is something that is so widely experienced in our life, and I think both yoga and Buddhism have have things to say about that. So you talk about the Pali word dukkha. So can you can you define that word for us and say a little bit about it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well. Um... So dukkha is usually translated into English uh, as suffering. But uh, many people have used various other translations, like one is uh, unsatisfactoriness. Uh, another one is, is stress. Mm. Just the word stress could be dukkha, because dukkha does refer not only to what we ordinarily... That, that's why the word suffering is sometimes... Uh, uh, misleading because it refers not only to what we would ordinarily call suffering like physical pain or emotional pain or some kind of loss or disappointment uh, it also refers to uh, minor irritations and just uh, a nagging feeling of something not quite being completely right even when things are going well is also dukkha the word actually they say has an etymology that has to do with um uh, wagons, uh, an mm-hmm. axle uh, on a wagon that's a little bit um, off. Mm-hmm. So the wagon wheel doesn't smoothly roll, but there's a kind of glitch in it. Mm-hmm. But that's actually the uh, or- origin, etymological origin of the word dukkha. And so uh, the Buddha's insight was that Dukkha is an inherent feature of living. Mm -hmm. Because things inevitably change, including our own physical body and our own mind, uh, there is going to be dukkha because we're going to, we're subject to being physically injured, getting sick. Um, that's a feature of the body that there's no way that the body can avoid injury or sickness from time to time and certainly the body cannot avoid uh, aging and death and so therefore suffering is inherent in the nature of being alive in this world Mm -hmm. Uh, one way or the other whether it's something uh, slight and existential you know just not feeling quite right in oneself or some very painful uh, occurrence. Mm. And so the, the Buddha thought that this fact is behind all the kinds of human suffering that exists. There's so much human suffering that is extra that comes from our unwise conduct and behavior and unwise relationship to our own mind and emotions that if we could really understand uh, the nature of dukkha, uh, then we would, by understanding its nature and living in harmony with 
the fact of dukkha, we could really overcome uh, the extra pain and confusion that we're causing ourselves mm-hmm. and one another from unwise behavior. So that's that's sort of a, a synopsis of the insight that begins the Buddhist path, and the Buddhist mm-hmm. path is all about overcoming and overturning and transforming dukkha. Right. In the book, you write about equanimity and how equanimity is such an important part of what you just said, minimizing the suffering that we're adding on top of the suffering that happens in our life. Would you speak about equanimity? Yeah, well, equanimity is really just receiving whatever occurs uh, with an even mind. Equanimity means to have an equal or an even even mind at least as much as possible and to work toward uh, uh, training your mind and your heart so that you can receive what happens uh, uh, with some composure and that makes all the difference because uh, you know if if something happens in your life that can be corrected then you correct it and if something happens that cannot be corrected then you have to uh, receive it with an equanimous mind, and that maximizes your ability to live with it beautifully rather than uh, running around trying to stop what can't be stopped and thereby buying yourself twice as much suffering. Indeed. In yoga, there are ethical principles, and one of them is contentment, cultivating contentment, which mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. has something to do with equanimity. It's said a little different yeah, way, yeah, but um, being mm-hmm. content, you know, with what whatever is happening, being being um, being able to be content with whatever is happening has that co- uh, quality of equanimity within it. And there's also um, there's also a Um, writing about suffering within the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, which is one of the main texts that is studied Mm -hmm. in yoga. Um, One of them, I think it's 2.16, says, uh, suffering which has not yet been experienced is to be avoided. (laughs) Sounds like a no-brainer, right? (laughs) Um, right. And I think it speaks to that that which we can avoid, which has the, the quality of that extra suffering. That, that you talk about mm-hmm. what we mm-hmm. add on right. to whatever is happening in our in our lives and at the yoga sutras go on and talk about yoga as a path to r- relieve uh, suffering and mm-hmm. one of the one of the sutras that came to my mind was one that talks about the importance in yoga of uh, abhyasa and vairagyam and abhyasa is steady practice so steady meditation mm-hmm. practice and vairagyam is uh, non-attachment, non-attachment, particularly mm-hmm. to outcomes. I think mm-hmm. so. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to see the parallels, you know, in the in the oh, two yes. uh, oh, yes. systems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the Buddha, the Buddha was uh, aware of all of all of uh, that in his practice. I mean, after all, the Buddha came from the Indian context, and so yoga. And, and the ancient wisdom of India was certainly part of the Buddhist culture. And, uh, and, and yes, I, it's not surprising at all to me that the, the two paths would be virtually identical. But I think the Buddha had some um, philosophical differences with, with uh, the, the pre, pre-existing yoga paths. But when you really sort of take five steps back and look at the path as it goes, those philosophical differences really 
don't really matter that much. The practice is essentially the same. I think that's right. Both certainly very, very steeped in meditation. That meditation is the key, really yes. key practice. And yes, and dealing with suffering and, and, and the wisdom to live this life uh, as peacefully and as generously as possible is, yes. is really the point of both traditions, absolutely. Right. One of the sufferings that we all experience is the death of people who are close to us. And in, in the same essay, Suffering Opens the Real Path, you talk about the story of the death of a close friend of yours, Rabbi Alan Liu, and you share two lessons that you learned from his death. You write, when someone you love is gone, that person can't do anything anymore. This means that you have to do something or that you have to do something differently. Somehow you, who are connected to that person, have to do what they can no longer do. You have to ask yourself, now that this has happened, what will I do? What will I do in place of my friend? This is just so beautiful to me, This that, that passage about thinking about what is it that we need to do differently? Once we've experienced this kind of loss, I just thought it was it was so um, such a beautiful way to honor those people who are so meaningful in our lives after their passing. So, can you say more about that for our listeners? Yes. Well, yes. Alan was, uh, and we were very very close and practiced together for for many many decades, and we had a deep uh, spiritual connection. And so uh, I don't I don't know where I got that thought from. I think it just arose spontaneously from his death. The recognition that um, I had to now that he was gone, uh, I had to live differently to honor his passing. And and so uh, he was a very compassionate person, and he would get upset, you know, when people that he loved were in trouble. He was a rabbi of a large congregation, and when his congregants would be sick, he would always go to the hospital to visit, and he really took it personally, and, and he would he would suffer with their suffering. And I and I wasn't so much like that, you know. I, I was, um, I don't know, maybe maybe as my understanding of Buddhism was a little cool, you know, cooler in the sense that <laughs> you know there was more equanimity, and okay, I understood somebody was suffering, but that's okay, kind of. But when when he past, I realized I needed to take on that that quality in my own life to honor his passing and to keep him with me all the time. So I actually began trying to cultivate a different attitude. And, 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 and I do now suffer more, you know, actually, um, <laughs> because uh, when, when someone in my life is, is, uh, that I'm aware of is, is suffering, you know, I take it, take it in. And I also suffer, which I, in, in a way that I didn't before. And, and even though suffering is not fun, I'm glad to suffer. And whenever I do, suffer in that way, I know I'm suffering with him and, and for him and as him. And so the love of, uh, that was so um, central to our relationship continues uh, as I experience the suffering of others throughout the rest of my life. So it's a beautiful thing. And I, and I think this is something 
that maybe uh, we would only practice with someone who is very close to us, like, uh, say, yes. a, a parent. You know, I can imagine that with a parent, you lose a mother or a father, and you might think, well, now, how am I going to change my life to honor my mother or my father or a spouse or a child, if you, God forbid you, to lose a child, or someone very close, uh, not with anybody who passes, but with someone very close, I think, uh, it makes sense to, to really change your inner life in relation to that loss. And that's what I was talking about there, yeah. On, on a lighter just... note, uh, one of the things that uh, Rabbi Lou and I shared was uh, a, a deep love for the San Francisco Giants baseball team. <laughs> and so I, I, the other day it occurred to me as the Giants are, in fact, today going to be playing in the playoffs for the World Series. Uh, I realized, oh my gosh, Allen died in 2009, and he missed mm -hmm. the world championship of the Giants in 2010, 2012, 2014, and now in 2021. He missed all of that, and wow. so I have to enjoy it all the more now for, for him. It's too bad that he missed all that. Indeed, but a lovely way of honoring his memory. That's great. <laughs> yeah. As we get to the close of the program, I wanted to give you a chance to leave some words of encouragement or inspiration with our listeners. So we've got a little over two minutes. What would you like to leave with our listeners? Well, uh, just to say that uh, I think we're all aware of the perilous state of the world that we live in now. And uh, it's immense, our, our various human problems. I don't need to list them. Everybody everybody knows and maybe has their own list. But in, in, this, in this situation that we're in, I think that um, spiritual practice is absolutely necessary. Objective solutions to our human problems uh, are necessary, but they're, they're insufficient. We also need more compassion and more togetherness and more understanding. And, and so each one of us who develops those qualities and just exudes them in our relationships, we're spreading an attitude that is absolutely necessary for human survival. So I hope that everybody will, will uh, continue with their spiritual path, whatever it may be, and, and continue with, with uh, increased um, power and a vision that this is not only for yourself, uh, this is for all of us, so I hope that the, your center will, uh, I know it will, uh, continue uh, with strength, and, and our center will, and all spiritual centers all across the country and all, and all across the world uh, need to strengthen ourselves and continue to share what we offer for the whole world. It's so important, mm -hmm. right? More mm -hmm. than ever. Really beautiful way to underline pretty much everything we said about yes. how how we can bring our attention, bring our awareness of presence that we talked about, bring our understanding of, of the importance of meeting suffering with equanimity, all of that can bring it out into the world and can that it that it does have an effect and that it is um, it is a time of great importance for our own spiritual practice with the idea not of what we do during our meditation, right? But what, how we live our lives. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And with that, 
we've come to the close of the program. You've been listening to the Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show, and I've been discussing living your spiritual practice with Zoketsu Norman Fisher, Zen Buddhist priest, teacher, poet, and author of the book we've been discussing today, When You Greet Me, I Bow, Notes and Reflections from a Life in Zen. You can find out more about Norman Fisher, his books, and his teachings at the websites normanfisher.org and again f-i-s-c-h-e-r normanfisher.org and everydayzen.org and these will be also on our website theyogahour.com thank you so much norman fisher for joining me today on the yoga hour my great pleasure really wonderful to talk to you laurel for listeners join me next time on the yoga hour when i will be joined by pamela selig who is a yoga practitioner and author of the book, Threads of Yoga. We'll be exploring how the profound spiritual philosophy and enriching practices of yoga enhance our daily lives. We encourage you to join us for the many online programs offered by Yogacharya O'Brien and the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment. Our programs include morning meditation, which occurs daily from 6.30 to 7.30 a.m., afternoon meditations from 4 to 4.30 p.m., and Sunday satsangs from 10 to 11 a.m. Pacific time each week. There's a special program actually coming up this Sunday from 10 to noon, celebrating the beginning of a year of, of um, honoring the 40 years of um, the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment and of Yogacharya's teaching. Learn more about these programs at the website csecenter.org or Yogacharya's website, ellengraceobrien.com. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. Remember to subscribe to the Yoga Hour and check us out at the website, theyogahour.com. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya O'Brien, assistant producers, Anne Hayes and Mickey Coronado and Jeff Comfort and Louis Pagan in the sound booth. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA plus Unity Ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash divine 2022 